Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of the Brothers Karamazov. I am quickly realizing that we are well over our heads in trying to tackle 60 pages at a stretch in each one of these discussions, but we will do our best anyway. Um, we are into our first actual narrative passage, not so much of the just straight exposition and description stuff. And this is a messy one. Like I said, I think, I'm not sure this, uh, this chapter actually works as far as Dostoevsky's artistic abilities are concerned. Um, but I want to start by talking about that, about whether or not this passage fails. Um, and I want to stress that it is incredibly ambitious. Um, like, if you think of all of the various great works of literature in the history of literature being a thing, um, you know, you think of the Iliad and the opening conversation between Achilles and Agamemnon, or you think of, you know, Anna Karenina with the uh, family of Stepan Trofimovich running around, like, being crazy in the wake of the adulterous affair, or you think of, you know, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, or any of these other sorts of classic works, typically you open these works with a couple of characters interacting with each other so you can see how two or three major important characters behave, and then you start blowing it out. Um, it's rare that you end up with an opening scene that has this many characters to look at. Like, one of my all-time favorite works of literature for sort of introducing characters and developing characters is Catch-22, Joseph Heller's book about the, the war, uh, about the World War II from the perspective of an aviator slash bomber. Um, and Heller is especially brilliant at introducing characters. Um, he does it slowly, but he also accompanies each character with certain very characteristic behaviors. Um, or even like an epithet in some way. So, you know, you have Orr who is always has apples in his cheeks, and you have Yosarian who is introduced to you as, you know, censoring various writers' letters, or you are introduced to the Texan, and you get this great line about he was affable and pleasant, and by the end of the week, everybody hated him. You get Clevenger and his efforts to draw out time. Like, I can remember all of this without even looking at the book. But keep but importantly for Heller, it's only one or two new characters literally every chapter. Um, like, the first chapter of Catch-22 is in a hospital ward, specifically cutting off Yosarian know, and Clevenger and the Texan from all of the other characters you're going to run into in the course of the novel. And there are dozens. Heller is very slow about introducing his characters. Dostoevsky here doesn't wait our first set of scenes here incorporates all of the principal characters, Fyodor Karamazov and all three sons, Alyosha, Ivan, and Dmitri, as well as Pyotr Alexandrovich Miusov, the elder Zosima himself, two major figures of the monastery, uh, Father Yossi and Father Pacey, as well as Rakitin, a number of various women like uh, Madame Koklikov, like... It's wild to think that he's literally trying to balance as the first descriptive passage in his book something like a dozen and a half characters. It's insane. Like, it doesn't work because there's too much to keep track of. 
Um, by contrast, Dostoevsky knows better than to do this in his other novels. Like, the first couple of descriptive passages in Crime and Punishment deal with just Raskolnikov alone. Like, he's bumming around St. Petersburg, running into random people, just random throwaway characters, and having this rich internal monologue that you sort of uh, catch and recognize. Or in The Idiot, it's the same thing. Like, you have this one fish-out-of-water character, the young prince, who is introduced to this family in in Russia, or in the Russian cities, and he is also being introduced to this wide spectrum of characters at the same time as the, the audience is, as the reader is. Um, in Demons, the entire first chapter is devoted to Varvara Petrovna and Stepan... Uh, I forget which Stepan it is. I always forget the patronymics. I get him confused with the one from Anna Karenina, so I apologize for that. But it's only two characters, and again, it's only two characters for like the first 50 pages of Demons. But here, after our huge expository introductory passage where we're introduced to all of the sons, we get this massive scene with all of these characters that would have been ambitious in the middle of the novel, much less right here at the beginning. And what's truly ironic is that we're never going to see a, a scene with this many characters all bouncing off of each other again. Like, in the whole of the novel, until we get to the very end when we, we get the trial scenes and everything going on there, most of this novel is going to be one-on-one -on -one conversations or just the brothers and the father or other sort of small-scale interactions like this. The fact that Tostoyevsky leads with this scene is crazy. Like, I get the reasoning behind it. I, I understand that he has a lot of different moving parts that he wants to introduce, and he wants to introduce them as quickly as possible so he can get into the drama, and he wants to start it off with a bang. That's a pretty good principle. Like, we're talking about, you know, the, the in medias res rule of, of Homer or, or other great writers where we're just going to drop you straight into the action and see what happens. But it's just overwhelming here, especially for non-Russian audiences who are trying to keep track of all of these names and all of these habits of a strange culture and strange sort of like character dynamics of the, the various ranks of the various characters, as well as just the weird Russian politics that are underlying the scene. This is a busy, busy scene. And if you didn't follow it, that's totally okay. I totally missed what was going on the first time I read this scene. I still struggle with it today, and only because, like, I've really dissected it for the purpose of talking about it today do I really have a handle on what Dostoevsky is doing and how he's going about it. Um, fortunately, the one thing that does save this, that, you know, actually gets people through the, through the door, despite the fact that it is so hostile um, in, in this opening scene, is the fact that Dostoevsky is a genius when it comes to writing his characters. Um, like, don't get me wrong, there's a ton of stuff that I admire about Dostoevsky, but one of the things that is just even on display here in the very opening scene is the fact that every one of the characters that I mentioned, all of the dozen and a half characters who are all hanging around in this scene, they're all so distinct in the way that they speak. Like, I imagine it's even more obvious in the Russian. Um, but... Uh, Peter and Volokonsky especially are really good at this. It's one of the reasons why I favor them over Constance Garnett. Garnett tends to sort of drop all of the, the characters into a similar register. Um, but you'll notice for Dostoevsky, each, or each one of these characters has a, like, you don't even need to know. He doesn't even need to tell you, you know, Musov said XYZ or Fyodor uh, 
Fyodor Pavlovich said X, Y, Z. Like, you know exactly who's speaking just because of the way they are speaking. Musov has this very formal, very ponderous, very restrained, and yet frequently totally wrong way of addressing the monks and the other characters. Like, he is simultaneously refusing to engage with the whole ecclesiastical authority here, but at the same time trying to be deferential. It's really weird. We'll talk about that. Um, Fyodor Karamazov is always rushing into things and getting over his head, and he's like barely even articulate as he sort of just blows up these, these ridiculous ideas beyond the original lie that he said. Like, he'll start with a lie and then commit so hard to it that he'll just turn himself around and be so confused by the whole business. Ivan speaks methodically and carefully. Alexei is sort of young and passionate and easily sort of disturbed. Even minor characters like Maximov, who's just sort of hanging around the periphery here, he gets like something like four lines. You'll notice that he is totally confused the entire scene. Every time that he speaks, it's just ellipses after ellipses. He can't even get a full sentence out. Um, he's obviously just so bamboozled by the whole thing. And standing above all of these is Zosima, um, the elder, who we've, you know, we've already heard quite a bit about him in the expository passage, and we finally see him here, and it's amazing what Dostoevsky can do with him. Notice that he is the only character who is supremely confident at all times, who always cuts to the heart of the issue. Um, he speaks with a clear religious bent, but at the same time, he's not overflowing with these sorts of religious references and, and scriptural references. Weirdly, the guy who says the most scripture in this passage is Fyodor Karamazov. He misquotes the Bible every third line, as though it's expected of him here. You will see Zosima refer to the Bible, but he rarely directly quotes it. Likewise, the, the other monks, they will often refer to it and think about these, these lines in their proper context, but it's Fyodor who's showing off. Fyodor feels compelled to sort of demonstrate his knowledge here, which is just, again, fascinating. And we have... As a result, what I kind of want to do with this passage is rather than sort of take it and like dissect the plot and what and the events of what's happening here, I want to take this character by character. I want to look at what Dostoevsky is doing with each of the characters and how they're interacting with each other, how they're relating to the other characters in the scene, and how the other characters relate to them. And to start, we need to go to a really weird place. Because the principal character of this scene, the character that we spend the most time with, and the character we see the most deeply, is Miusov of all of them. Like, we are getting a sort of fish-out-of-water perspective on the entire Karamazov family in this chapter. Miusov is the first character we interact with. He is the perspective character from a certain point of view. Our narrator frequently sort of interjects him and shows us exactly what Miusov is thinking at any given moment. And we get the most clear picture of who Miusov is, which is, again, kind of weird. It throws us off because... Here we've just come off of like 35 pages of Dostoevsky telling us all about this complex family of the Karamazovs and who the sons are and how they came to be and how they relate to the father and how their characters look. And we get like one half page at the very end of that whole expository section where we get a description of what Miusov is doing and why he's involved at all. But when we in fact jump into the story here, it's Miusov who's going to carry us with him. 
Yusov's perspective is where the camera is located, in a manner of speaking. Um, and as a consequence, we need to understand where he's at. He is an outsider here, and I'm sure this is deliberate on Dostoevsky's part. Like, in a novel that is going to be all about these brothers and this father and their relationships and the complexities that are involved in all this, we need to sort of be introduced to it from an objective observer, somebody who isn't necessarily invested, especially when tempers are running so high here. Like, there's an entire scene that's just Fyodor and Dmitri basically screaming at each other over some frankly reprehensible behavior on both of their accounts that everybody is sort of trying to untangle. That's why we're all here, after all. And in order for us to see that clearly, we can't be sitting in the mind of Fyodor, who doesn't even know what he's doing half of the time, or for that matter, for Dmitri, who's getting carried away with his own emotions this entire time. Ivan might be a smart play, but Ivan... Ivan's kind of a mystery at this point. Much as we think we understand him, much as it seems pretty clear that he's the intellectual, he's the one who's digesting it all, his behavior doesn't line up with this. Um, and in fact, it's obvious from the way that many of the characters talk about him, including Miusov, and the way that he behaves, especially at the end of this scene, that Ivan, Ivan's got something going on, and we don't know what it is at this point. There's some darkness hovering over him. So if there is, in fact, a Karamazov who is sort of equipped to examine his own family, it's Alexei. But Alexei has so little to do in this scene. Alexei is just sort of hanging around the periphery, and we are introduced to his perspective. Like, we were told at the end of the expository chapter that Alexei is dreading this meeting. He knows it's going to go badly. He knows that Miyusov is going to get snippy, and he knows that his father is going to get go completely off the wall, and he knows that Dmitri is going to lose control, and he knows that Ivan is going to just sit there su superiorly as though it, this is all beneath him. Alexei is initiated into the secrets of the family, and therefore he kind of knows too much. Alexei would already give us too much insight into the family. He would give us too much information to process. Alexei is already buzzing. We need somebody who is looking at these people from a fairly simplistic perspective. And that's what Miusov does for us. Because, weirdly to say, Miusov is kind of an idiot. And that's what's great about him. Um, Miusov isn't processing all the nuances here. Miusov doesn't understand what's going on here. And in fact, what's really fascinating about Miusov is that all of the sort of glimpses we get into his own interior life is he's basically just a selfish dick. Like, I don't even mean to be, you know, especially mean about this, because Dostoevsky isn't. There's even a, a passage where, you know, like, right towards the end, once, you know, all of the craziness has happened in the cell and everybody's kind of split up and they're going to dinner with the, with the fathers of the monastery, with the abbot and company, we get this great description from Dostoevsky where he says that Yusov was actually a really generous person, like, really magnanimous in his own right. Yeah, it's superficial, for sure, but at the end of the day, Musov does just want to be a decent person. He just wants to be a decent person so everybody will know that he's a decent person, so he'll look good to everybody else. Um, and Dostoevsky doesn't judge him on this front. Like, nobody does. And that's, again, one of the great geniuses of Dostoevsky is we see a lot of monsters here, a lot of people behaving selfishly or poorly or just reprehensibly, and Dostoevsky doesn't judge. 
Like Zosima, he stands behind that. He just observes. He wants to show the humanity of all of these characters, no matter who they are, no matter what they're doing, no matter why they're doing it, and basically give them credit where credit is due, even if they are kind of not great people to begin with. So look at the way that we're introduced to Miyusov here. Right at the very beginning, uh, they arrive in the monastery. We get this description to start of how gorgeous the day is, which is itself kind of weird. It's, you know, the end of August, starting to be fall, and apparently all of the most beautiful fall flowers are out in the monastery, and, like, it's a gorgeous sunny day. It's weirdly inappropriate, <laughs> given the fact that there's going to be all of this drama and all of this anger. Like, at the very least, you would think that Dostoevsky would say that it's oppressively hot or something. But no, it's just gorgeous. Like, this is a faultless day. Um, and the entire business, the entire drama of this scene takes place in the course of like two hours. Um, you'll notice that they show up at noon. And the expectation is that Dmitri will also show up at noon. But of course, Fyodor has sent Smerdyakov to tell him that it isn't at noon, it's at one. So he's late by an hour, but he's late by an hour specifically because Fyodor wants him to look bad. Um, and then they have their have it all out in the course of like half an hour or so, at which point everybody goes their separate ways, and you know, dinner is apparently at like two o'clock or something. So we're talking about like midday dinner, not you know, end of the day supper kind of dinner. But that's it. Like and then they leave. Then there's the scandal because Fyodor breaks in and half an hour after that it's done. Like we're talking about a maximum two and a half hour scene here. Um, it's all very compact. And it kind of works because at least when I was sitting here reading it, it took me an hour and a half to two hours to read the whole section. Um, so it kind of is really happening in real time here. Um, and all during this lovely, gorgeous afternoon. So notice in the first in the first chapter, the, they arrive at the monastery. We have a bunch of characters already that we're sort of interacting with. First, we see Musov hanging out with Kalganov, who's apparently like bunking with him for some unknown reason. Um, and notice that Musov is like trying to coerce Kalganov into going to university with him somewhere on the European continent. Like, let's go to Zurich, let's go to Jena. One thing that you'll notice about Musov is that he is very proud of the fact that he's been traveling throughout Russia or throughout Europe beyond the borders of Russia. He doesn't consider himself a provincial, and it actually avoids provinciality in that respect. Uh, but notice the difference between the two characters. Like, Kalganov is young and sort of awkward, and, and really doesn't know how to comport himself in this situation. It's just really weird for him. So, for example, when they're immediately approached by all these beggars, Miusov doesn't give anybody anything. Like, he just walks off as though he's offended by the whole practice, that it's beneath him in some way. Kalganov, on the other hand, he gets flustered, and he passes this one random lady a 10-kopeck piece and mutters something, as he says on page 35, to be shared equally. Like, I just gave one person out of maybe a dozen a coin and told them to split it 12 different ways, even though it's only 10 kopecks. Like, it's really weird. But it obviously shows that he wants to do something. He feels for these people in some way, but he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't actually have money. He certainly can't sort out the situation, and he's not here to do it. Like, he's taken off guard by this. But notice that Miyusov is very judgmental about everyone. 
So, for example, Maximov shows up, and Maximov is sort of directing them to the Hermitage, although he's doing a really bad job of it. And on the one hand, Fyodor is making fun of Maximov. He says he looks like Von Song, who is apparently this murderer who was caught and accused of murder while engaged in some sort of sexually depraved activities. Um, it was apparently a big deal at the time that Dostoevsky was writing, and it's, you know, a sensational enough story that Fyodor Pavlovich supposedly would have heard about it as well. And since he has no filter, immediately his brain goes there. But Miusov, we get this just this one really cutting line about Maximov, a most obnoxious old fellow, Miusov remarked aloud as the landowner Maximov ran back to the monastery, which encourages Fyodor to call him von Song, and they go back and forth. On the one hand, Musov is really offended by Fyodor Pavlovich and all of his antics. On the other hand, you'll notice Musov and Fyodor Pavlovich kind of feed each other. Um, on the one hand, Musov is, like, very judgmental. He, he always has these really nasty things to say about people. You know, he, the Maximov is this obnoxious old fellow, and like Fyodor himself, he he's threatens multiple times, if you act like an idiot, I'm going to get out of here, and I'm going to leave you here. But at the same time, Fyodor almost always responds to Miusov's cruelty with absurdity, and even expects Miusov to respond to him, is arguably doing it for Miusov's benefit. Like, later in this, in the whole scene, you'll see that Fyodor specifically gears his sort of attacks, his ridiculousness, to upset Miusov. Like, he's trying to elicit a reaction from Miusov. That Miusov is so uptight, so proud of himself, so, so you know, self-righteous about the, the proprieties of the circumstances, that Fyodor is deliberately messing with him. And notice, too, that Miusov is really uncomfortable in this situation especially. Particularly because Musov isn't comfortable with the clergy in this situation. Um, so notice on page 39, in chapter 2, The Old Buffoon, that first major paragraph on page 39, the elder Zosima came out accompanied by a novice and Alyosha. The hieromonks, these are the monks that are also priests, um, rose and greeted him with a very deep bow, touching the ground with their fingers, and having received his blessing, kissed his hand. When he had blessed them, the elder returned the same deep bow to each of them, touching the ground with his fingers, and asked a blessing of each of them for himself. The whole ceremony was performed very seriously, not at all like some everyday ritual, but almost with a certain feeling. Notice what Dostoevsky is emphasizing about this. These are characters who interact with each other literally every day. This has happened over and over and over again. The hieromonks are sitting in wait on the elder who is very venerated among the community. The elder blesses them in this sort of formal, orthodox sort of way, and they return the blessing. And notice that it is both it is both directions. Like, the elder Zosima does not assume that he is superior to them in any way. He asks for their blessing just as they ask him for his. It's reciprocal. There's a humility about this. But notice, too, that it's not formalized. Dostoevsky specifically emphasizes that it's performed with a certain feeling. Not only do these people bless each other as this sort of formal, this is what you do in the Orthodox service, this is how they've like habitually come to relate to one another, but they mean it. They care about each other. They bless each other because they actually honestly want that blessing and to perform that blessing for others. They respect each other. And notice that right in the middle of this, we are interrupted by Musov's perspective here. 
To Miusov, however, it all seemed done with deliberate suggestion. He stood in front of all his fellow visitors. He ought, and he had even pondered it the previous evening, despite all his ideas, just out of simple courtesy, since it was customary there, to come up and receive the elder's blessing, at least receive his blessing, even if he did not kiss his hand. But now, seeing all this bowing and kissing of the hieromonks, he instantly changed his mind. Gravely and with dignity, he made a rather deep bow, by worldly standards, and went over to a chair. Fyodor Pavlovich did exactly the same this time, like an ape, mimicking Musov perfectly. Ivan Fyodorovich bowed with great dignity and propriety, but he too kept his hands at his sides, while Kalganov was so nonplussed that he did not bow at all. Notice the relationship that each of the characters has here. Like, Dostoevsky is actually giving us profound information about all of the characters in these seemingly throwaway descriptions. And in fact, this is characteristic of Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky is keenly attentive to the slightest behaviors of all of his characters. And you will see a lot of the time when he's describing a conversation between two characters or when he's describing the way that they introduce one one another, he will specifically focus on the details of their posture, their behavior, their body language. He is very interested in that, and it very much informs the characters that he's building here. So notice how each of them responds. Miusov, we get the internal monologue. Again, the camera is focused behind Miusov, so we see exactly what's going through his mind. And Miusov is looking at the exact same, almost sweet interaction of Elders Osima and the Hieromonks, and he's disgusted by it. He thinks that it's all put on, that it's all an act, that it's all fake, that it's all just empty ritualism without any substance behind it. And what's more, he has this sort of repugnance about it. It was performed very seriously, we're told by the narrator, but it seems done with deliberate suggestion to Miusov as though they're just putting on airs, making it out to be more important than it is. So Miusov is frustrated. He is convinced that he has to put these dang monks in their place, remind them that they are just part of this religious organization that, for Miusov at least, he doesn't respect. Notice the detail there. Despite his ideas, just out of simple courtesy, he plans to come up and receive the blessing. Notice the line, despite his ideas. We are told, through several indications like this detail, that Miusov is a liberal. And this is important for Dostoevsky. In this political climate in the 19th century Russian world, there is a very keen divide between the sort of Russians who are nationalists and who are conservative and who, you know, like the old ways before Peter the Great's reforms, before Russia became very Europeanized, before Russia sort of succumbed to all these, quote, liberal ideas from Paris and from London and from, you know, Germany and all of the sort of western parts of, the, of Europe where, you know, that's the center of the world in the 19th century. Um, there are all these Russians who are against these things, and there, there are all these Russians who are absolutely in favor of these things. Miusov is a liberal. He prides himself on the fact that he's spent a great deal of time in France, in Germany, in England, and that that is where his ideas come from. But notice how that informs him as a person. He is, as a result, not interested 
in the Russian clerical tradition, in the way that the Orthodox monks behave themselves. And in fact, because he is following these liberal traditions, because he is probably indoctrinated by all of the 19th century atheists that are running rampant over the continent at this point, because he is informed by all the Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire and Diderot, which you'll notice Fyodor Pavlovich also drops references to these several times during their discussion, he considers himself above this. This religious stuff is all superstition and nonsense. Notice that he is willing to be magnanimous. His original plan here is, well, yes, despite my ideas, despite the fact that I know better, I'm going to respect this monk because that's the decent thing to do. But when he's actually confronted with it, when he actually sees the monks bowing and scraping, all of this kissing and stuff, Musov immediately is sort of repulsed by it. He thinks, oh, this is just all that old horrible tradition stuff, and it has nothing to do with all of my great brilliant ideas. And as a consequence, he doesn't bow. Or rather, he doesn't receive the blessing. He doesn't go forward. He doesn't kiss the, the elder's hand the way that you're supposed to in this situation. Instead, he just bows. He turns a religious ritual of a kind into a secular introduction. And this is an important detail for Dostoevsky. This shows us the relationship between the characters and how messed up the situation is. Remember, on some level, the entire reason why everybody is together is because Fyodor and Dmitri have this ongoing feud, and we're trying to resolve it here with the help of the monks and with the help of the elder, with Musov looking on as a sort of, like, objective judge in this case. This is what's supposed to happen. But notice that Alexei has sort of intimated to us in the, the expository chapter that he expects this to be a farce that he expects Musov to only be there to sort of watch as things unfold into scandal, that Fyodor is just there to make trouble, and that Dmitri is going to get carried away. We know all of this is going to happen. So Musov isn't here for good reasons. And the fact that he is not willing to, as Fyodor puts it at one point, you know, win in Rome, do as the Romans, which is actually a very anglicized version of a Russian phrase, which is actually, when you're in the monastery, do as the monks do, which is really appropriate under the circumstances. Um, Musov refuses to do this. Re Musov refuses to behave that way, is too proud of his ideas, too proud of his you know, education, his liberal values, to change in this situation. But notice how everybody follows suit as a consequence. Musov sets the tone because he's the leader of the group in some way. But Fyodor, you'll notice, immediately turns it into a joke. Where Miyusov bows, and Dostoevsky notes that he even bows a little more than is normal under the circumstances. So Miyusov is, in fact, expressing deference here. He's, he's saying, you know, I refuse to do your religious ceremony because I am enlightened, but I respect and revere the religion that you practice. Fyodor immediately responds by mocking Miyusov. That's what he does every time he introduces himself to another character. Like when Dmitri walks in later very late, he also does this very formal, very stiff bow. Dostoevsky describes that that Dmitri bows as though he has been practicing this bow, preparing for this moment for a long time. And then for both of these characters, Miusov and Dmitri, it's clear that the bow is sincere, that it means something to them. 
it's stilted and it's stiff and it doesn't convey what they're really thinking at that moment and it is partially practiced and forced but it is trying to communicate something earnest despite the fact that they can't put words to it and this is something really interesting in Dostoevsky's work these characters who are sort of forced by their circumstances to belie themselves Miusov has all of these ideas, he has all these concepts swimming around in his head, he has these very complicated relationships, very complicated ideas about the situation that he's in, and the situation he's in is weird and, as the title would suggest, inappropriate. And he tries to overcome that, tries to be better than that, tries to be as decent as he can given these conflicting emotions and feelings, just as Dmitri does, just as Dmitri bows trying to respect his father as much as he possibly can in that moment, and yet the response in both cases is farce. Fyodor has no such interest in honesty. Fyodor is always playing the fool, always out to mock. So when Miusov bows honestly, Fyodor performs the exact same bow in ape-like imitation. When Dmitri bows to his father, trying to salvage some degree of the respect that is left to him, despite the fact that he and his father hate each other's friggin' guts, Fyodor's immediate response is to mimic the bow. Make fun of it. Turn it into a joke. And that's what Fyodor does. Miusov is complicated. He's trying to express something honest, even as he's really caught up in his own sort of intellectualism and nonsense. But Fyodor doesn't have that. Fyodor's got his own problems. And notice the way that he interacts with the Elder. How Fyodor introduces himself with this basically diarrhea of, you know, verbal information. We get this just ridiculous, like, speech that is totally nonsensical. First we get the story about the Ispravnik, the, the judge that he's had to go to, and he calls him a Napravnik, which is like... A, choral master or something and he's like just committing so hard to this absurd pun um that it becomes just ridiculous and everybody hates him and thinks that he's an idiot and he sort of just embraces this as a consequence notice what he says in the second in the second chapter where he talks about Diderot or rather, uh, rather the second paragraph of this kind. This is on page 41, the bottommost paragraph. He's given us this whole story about Ispravnik, not Napravnik, and like making fun of himself, but also being earnest and sort of confessing to the elder in some way. And Miusov immediately points out, you're doing it now too, Miusov muttered in disgust. Miusov doesn't want him to make the joke. Or does he? Again, it's complicated. He's, they're feeding each other. The elder silently looked from one to the other, and Fyodor responds, really, imagine, I knew it all along, Pyotr Alexandrovich, and you know, I even had a feeling that I was doing it just as I started speaking, and you know, I even had a feeling that you would be the first to point it out to me. In those seconds when I see that my joke isn't going over, my, my cheeks, Reverend Father, begin to stick to my lower gums, it feels almost like a cramp. I've had it since my young days, when I was a sponger on the gentry and made my living by sponging. I'm a natural-born buffoon. I am, Reverend Father, just like a holy fool. I won't deny that there's maybe an unclean spirit living in me, too. Not a very high-caliber one, by the way. Otherwise, he would have chosen grander quarters. Only not you, Pyotr Alexandrovich. Your quarters are none too grand, either. Notice the way that this sentence functions, or doesn't. How it's broken up by all these sporadic commentaries on his own speech as he's making it. How we go from, you know, 
I knew that I was making a fool of myself. I knew that I was just verbal diarrhea. Like, I knew that I was just incontinent. That's literally the word that they use at one point. Um, and he starts describing his own incontinence, the, the fact that he is a buffoon. He, he's fixated on this. But notice, too, the way that he describes it. I'm a natural-born buffoon. I am, Reverend Father, just like a holy fool. Which is such a weird connection to make here. But at the same time, very fitting. Like, notice, we've talked about holy fools in the last section where we talked about how there is this sort of secondary institution of, of you know, the elders and how they re relate to the other sort of monks and monasteries in the Orthodox tradition and how the elders enjoy this sort of super important significance and how there's that story about the, like, the dead body who flung himself out of the church because the elder hadn't forgiven him. Like, we get the significance here, and we've been told that Zosima has been called a holy fool. That this term, holy fool, specifically refers to these people so touched by their holiness, so sort of informed by their relationship to God or to Christ that they behave in ways that seem absurd or ridiculous. Um, notice that Fyodor connects himself to that. That he, through his sort of insane, nonsensical rambling, is a holy fool in his own right. But notice, too, what he immediately follows up with. I won't deny that there's maybe an unclean spirit living in me, too. Notice the connection he's making. Rather than looking at a holy fool as though it's someone who is so caught up in the Holy Spirit that he behaves in ways that are outside of the normal human experience, that it seems abnormal or unusual or even wrong to our ears. But the assumption, of course, being that it is because of holiness, because of that connection to God, Fyodor flips it around and says, I am a holy fool because I have an unclean spirit living in me, because I am possessed by some evil demon. This is typical of the way that Fyodor talks. He gets the facts wrong. Like, he does this all the time. When he talks about the monastery, he gets the facts wrong. When he accuses the monks of, of having, like, the, the, all of this booze hanging around, he gets the facts wrong. He, he deliberately, in the earlier sections, like, remarks and focuses upon the fact that, like, the elder Zosima apparently is allowed to fraternize with women, and they've got, like, a hole in the monastery wall so the elder can go outside of the walls and administer to the women there. And he does this in the very next chapter. Um... All, he, like, Fyodor is focusing on the most salacious, the most dirty-minded details of the monk's life. He takes what is innocent and holy, in some cases, and turns it into something unholy, something crass, something grotesque. And even when the monks are vulnerable, when they, in fact, do have this problem, like the fact that they have been consuming this liquor and apparently have been producing kvass within the, the monastery walls, something that they've been criticized by, and it, apparently there was a bit of a scandal once upon a time, Fyodor immediately lashes onto this. Well, what about the liquor thing? And at the same time as, you know, there is some truth to, the, to this, the monk immediately responds, dude, we dealt with that. Yeah, it's, it was bad and we took care of it and now it's over and it's rather rude of you to bring it up now. Fyodor just doubles down. No, he gets the facts wrong and he commits to the wrong facts. Fyodor is disinterested in the truth of what he's saying. He just wants to say things. He just wants to sound smart or even sound idiotic. He wants to just follow his lies, their natural conclusion, and look incredibly absurd and make everybody uncomfortable and make everybody absurd. 
on some level, what Fyodor is doing in all of these speeches is making everybody ridiculous, bringing them all down to his level. If he cannot, in fact, be the you know most notable, most good person in the room, what he's going to do is he's going to make everybody else as bad as he is. And notice how he does do this fairly effectively a lot of the time. Miusov especially always bites, always fails, always falls. The minute the Fyodor makes, him, makes some kind of insult or some ridiculous comment, Miusov gets petty and vindictive and accusatory. And this is a triumph on Fyodor's part. Like, corrupting Miusov is his whole goal here. So notice how he continues with this story about Diderot. Um, but to make up for it, he says, I believe. I believe in God. It's only lately that I've begun to have doubts, but to make up for it, I'm sitting and waiting to hear lofty words. I am, Reverend Father, like the philosopher Diderot. Do you know, Most Holy Father, how Diderot the philosopher came to see Metropolitan Platon in the time of the Empress Catherine? He walks in and says right off, there is no God. To which the great hierarch raises his finger and answers, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Right then and there, our man fell at his feet. I believe, he cries, I will accept baptism. And so they baptized him at once. Princess Dashkova was his godmother, and his godfather was Potomkin. Fyodor Pavlovich, this is unbearable. You know yourself that you are lying, that your silly story isn't true. Why are you clowning, Yusuf said in a trembling voice, losing all control of himself. All my life I've had a feeling that it wasn't true, Fyodor Pavlovich cried excitedly. No, let me tell you the whole, whole truth, gentlemen. Great elder, forgive me, but that last part about Diderot's baptism, I invented myself just a moment ago while I was telling it to you. It never occurred to me before. I made it up for its piquancy. That's why I'm clowning Pyotr Alexandrovich, to make myself more endearing. Though sometimes I don't know myself why I do it. As for Diderot, I heard this, the fool hath said, maybe twenty times from local landowners when I was still young and lived with them. By the way, I also heard it, Pyotr Alexandrovich, from your aunt, Mavra Fumish. They all still believe that the godless Diderot came to Metropolitan Platon to argue about God. Notice the way that Fyodor Pavlovich turns this whole situation around. He starts with this ridiculous story. Diderot was this famous Enlightenment philosopher, one of the philosophers, or one of the late philosophers in the 18th century. He came to the Russian court when it was ruled by Catherine the Great, who was a big proponent of the Enlightenment and a big proponent of reform. And Diderot walks in. And apparently, according to this story, he says there is no God and is immediately converted. And this is where we go from, this is a thing that happened, a historical fact, Diderot went to the court of Catherine the Great, to rumor, hearsay, Diderot was converted on the spot by Russian clergy, to Fyodor carrying this story beyond its original intention. He heard the rumor that Diderot was converted, and now he's talking about baptism and godfathers, and, you know, it's all of the major heads of state who are acting as Diderot's, as Diderot's godfather and godmother, and this is where Miyusov can't handle it anymore. No, that didn't happen. That's ridiculous. You're just adding these, these details to the story, and Fyodor Pavlovich, rather than denying it, immediately admits it. Yeah, yeah, I made that up. Because it was fun, because it was a good detail, because it added piquancy to the story. It made the story more silly. And I did it not because I wanted to lie, but because I wanted to endear myself to you. Because by telling the story, I wanted to make a good impression. I wanted everyone to like me, in short. He admits this. But at the same time as he admits this, notice that there's untruth about it. That he immediately turns this around, turns his confession into, and where did I get the other information from the story? Oh, I got it from your aunt, Miusov. 
You too are complicit in my evil. You, by calling me out, I avenge myself on you. Where did I get the information? I got it from your relations, your side of the family. You think you're so liberal? Well, your family traffics in rumor as well. And notice, Musov is really upset by this. Like, Musov is, like, he gets up and he's really offended and he's going to say something. He gets this, like, half-hearted speech out. Forgive me, Musov began addressing the elder. It may seem to you that I, too, am a participant in this unworthy farce. My mistake was in trusting that even such a man as Fyodor Pavlovich would be willing to recognize his duties when visiting such a venerable person. Which, notice, Musov appeals to the authority of the elder, despite the fact that literally moments ago he refused to acknowledge the same authority. He calls him venerable, even though a moment ago he refused to receive his blessing. But notice the way the elder responds. How the elder initially gives us this line, do not upset yourself, I beg you. Do not worry, I beg you. I ask you particularly, Fyodor, to be my guest. And notice that after another set of lines and Fyodor, you know, getting completely ridiculous, um, like the, the elder even asks him, I beg you, do not worry and not to be uncomfortable. Be at ease and feel completely at home. And above all, do not be so ashamed of yourself, for that is the cause of everything. And Fyodor's like, oh, you wouldn't want to see me in my natural state. But the elder instead responds, no, you've known for a long time what you sh should do. You have sense enough. Do not give yourself up to drunkenness and verbal incontinence. Do not give yourself up to sensuality, and especially to the adoration of money. And close your taverns. If you cannot close all of them, then at least two or three. And above all, above everything else, do not lie. Notice how the elder cuts through all of it. Musov is totally concerned about the propriety of the circumstances. He's very easily offended, especially by Fyodor's joking. Fyodor, on the other hand, has this really weird relationship with himself insofar as he's trying to make a fool of himself, feeling uncomfortable at the situation. Notice that the elder immediately gets to the heart of it. Don't feel uncomfortable. Don't try and act like a fool here. Feel comfortable. Feel at home. And Fyodor doesn't trust himself. His initial response is, oh, you wouldn't want me to be at home. Like, in my natural state, I am a drunk, and I am a sensualist, and I would, you know, like, I live in depravity. That is my natural state, so this is how I correct myself. And the elder is like, no. The elder rejects this. The elder says, the reason why you are doing this, why you are behaving like such a buffoon, is because you are uncomfortable. Because you refuse to be at home with yourself. So when he actually gives legitimate advice, notice the advice, don't drink, don't give yourself up to verbal incontinence, no more of the foolishness, no more of the buffoonery, no more sensuality, no adoration of money, close your taverns, and most importantly of all, don't lie. The elder cuts right through it all. Fyodor Pavlovich, notice, again, his move is, I'm going to bring everybody in this room down to my level. I'm going to offend everyone. I'm going to make everything absurdity. Any smart thing, any clever thing, any wise thing that somebody says, I'm going to turn into a ridiculous joke. Musov bows sincerely, Fyodor makes a joke out of it. Dmitri bows sincerely, Fyodor makes a joke out of it. The elder, however, you can't make a joke out of it. The elder wins this interaction, and always wins the interaction. Notice, this is the antidote. And notice what it's not. Miusov 
seems to think that he's going to solve all of his problems with this liberal education, with his, you know, erudite, urbane knowledge from all of his time spent in Paris, all of his time spent in Germany. You know, Europeanism is what's going to save Russia. But what Fyodor is doing is the exact opposite. No, all of that is absurd. All of that can be ridiculed. All of that can be turned into nonsense. And he does. All of that European education is just foolishness. And Fyodor Pavlovich is also really smart on that front. Fyodor Pavlovich quotes as many brilliant thinkers as Musov does. Way more, because Musov is never willing to, like, show off on that front. He knows the ideas, or he thinks he knows those ideas, but he's never confident enough in them to actually talk about them. Fyodor Pavlovich, on the other hand, he's frequently quoting the Bible. He's frequently quoting Schiller. He's frequently quoting other thinkers of the age. Notice that he's the one who tells us the story about Diderot, but it is typical of the way that he tells it that it is this story about this great Enlightenment philosopher and this, you know, figure of great importance in Russian history, but it is turned into a joke as the time goes on. It is all absurdity. All this liberal idealizing, all of this liberal thinking, all of this atheism, it's all nonsense for Fyodor. But for the elder, what he says is just straight up true. He just cuts to the core of what's being said here. He's not interested in Diderot. He's not interested in Musov's sense of pride. He's not interested in being the smartest person in the room. No, he's interested in Fyodor as a person. Not as what he's trying to appear to be, not as what he's putting himself out to be, not as the buffoon, not as the sponger. No, he's interested in what is his lifestyle like? How do we fix this? This is a person who is suffering. And that's the core of what Zosima sees in Fyodor Pavlovich. Fyodor Pavlovich, everybody hates him, and everybody loves him. He's simultaneously both. Notice that even if Miusov, like, hates his guts, refuses to spend time with him, is offended by him, notice that they do, in fact, travel together. They are, in fact, going together. Miusov is even here at the monastery under false pretenses because he's got that apparent feud about the way that they've been cutting the wood and how they're fishing from the stream, and Miusov is kind of offended about it, and his whole, the whole reason why he can get in the door is because he falsely tells them that he's going to be, you know, talking over these problems, and therefore he's here to, you know, negotiate. He's here to do something good for the monastery, when he actually has no intention of doing so. Musov is bullshitting everyone here. And the other is not interested in that. He doesn't care. Musov's grand deceptions or self-deceptions or whatever, they're all of no interest to him. He's interested in Fyodor. Because Fyodor is suffering, and he sees that Fyodor is suffering. The symptom of his suffering is the verbal incontinence, the buffoonery, the absurdity, the nonsense, the fact that he is bringing down everyone down to their level, the fact that he is actively hurting everyone. The elder isn't interested in him, doesn't judge him for it, doesn't condemn him for it, isn't angry. Like, even Alyosha is mortified by this. Alyosha suffers because he knows that his father's doing this. He's trembling with suffering and rage. The elder doesn't feel any of it. All he sees is a man in pain. And he diagnoses the pain. You are doing this because you are uncomfortable. And then he prescribes for the pain. Change your habits. Stop drinking. Stop womanizing, stop owning taverns, stop worshiping money, and don't lie.
Notice what Dostoevsky is doing here. There is a huge difference between the lies, which are many and complicated and multivalent and easy to sort of snooker you into some kind of conviction of, of one sort or another. All of the characters in this scene, with the exception of the Elder and possibly Alexei, Alyosha, are lying in one way or another. And they are lying not because they're mean or evil or wrong, but because they're hurting. Miusov is insecure, and so he lies. He tells everybody that he is this brilliant liberal thinker, and he tries to hold on to these airs. Fyodor is insecure, and so he lies. He develops, concocts these ridiculous stories about Diderot, about the Ispravnik, about all of his various interactions. This is the way that he protects himself, because he's scared. And notice the other characters as well. Madame Koklikov has this whole complicated relationship with her own convictions and beliefs, which the Elder cuts through. Ivan! Ivan's a whole mess there. He's got this whole grand theory about the ecclesiastical courts and what they're ultimately going to come to, and Zosima ultimately commends him, says yes, this is exactly what's happening. Let me build on this. Like, notice that the one major speech we get from Elder Zosima is him responding to Ivan's speech in kind, saying, yeah, and then some. But at the same time, when Miusov is uncomfortable about this, we'll get to that, and puts Ivan under the bus, Elder Zosima's response is, Ivan is suffering. Ivan is in pain. The problem with Ivan's supposed hypocrisy that Miusov has, has brought out is not that he is some sort of manipulating, double-dealing intellectual. It's because he hasn't reconciled his own convictions yet. He is unsure. He is lacking faith. And without that, he suffers. But notice, too, that there is a huge difference between all of these elaborate, concocted lies, the lies that are spun out of the suffering of these various people, and the actual suffering, the bedrock suffering that Zosima deals with in the third chapter when the women of faith show up. Notice that we get this weird interlude here. Like, apparently they've been sitting around, you know, exchanging pleasantries or whatever it is that Fyodor Pavlovich is doing for the last half hour, and the elder is like, excuse me, I've got to, you know, since Dimitri isn't here, since we obviously can't actually conduct the business that we were here to conduct, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to administer to the women who have come for my help. And notice the problems that the women have. We have one woman, her three-year-old child is dead. The fourth baby she's had, all of them dead. None of them have survived, but this one hurts her the most. And Elder Zosima tells her he's in heaven. You don't need to worry about him. Yes, you can grieve. By all means, you shouldn't stop grieving. Grieving is your lot here. But at the same time, remember, he is blessed. He is protected. He gives her consolation. And notice the level of difference here. This is a woman who is suffering for real. Like, not concocting elaborate fictions, not spinning dramas for themselves, not suffering because of their insecurity or because of some sort of sense of misplaced pride, but because she really is legitimately suffering because of the love that she had for someone who was taken away from her. 
And it's significant that it's this particular situation that this woman is in, that it's this three-and-a-half-year-old child who just died, because Dostoevsky himself, in 1878, had just lost his very beloved youngest son at the same exact age, like to the month, even. But notice, too, the other situations that the women have here, the other pain that they feel, especially that last woman. Notice she has this husband who was really cruel to her, beat her all the time. She's come 300 miles to ask for forgiveness for her sin. Not her husband's sin, who has been beating her, but her sin. And when the elder Zosima asks, what is your sin, we're cut out of the conversation for a moment. Dostoevsky specifically positions the narrator so that we're now listening to them whisper together. She confesses to him, like, formally confesses to him in the same way that she confessed to her confessor back where she lives in whatever village that was. And we get this moment, we get this moment where she says, you know, have you come from far away, the Elder Zosima asks on the bottom of page 51, over 300 miles from here. Did you tell it a confession? I did. Twice I confessed it. Were you allowed to receive communion? I was. I'm afraid. Afraid to die. And she's told him what it is. We get this line where the elder says, wait, and he put his ear right to her lips. The woman continued in a soft whisper, almost inaudibly. She soon finished. Notice what the insinuation here is. Here is this woman who was beat regularly by her husband to within an inch of her life, to the, so regularly that it was all the time. And now she is guilty of this sin. It's pretty clear she murdered him. She killed him while he slept to protect herself. And the elder does not judge. The elder does not even share this information with us, doesn't try and trump it around, doesn't condemn her on the spot. No, just asks, did you receive confession? Were you allowed to receive communion? He refuses to gainsay whatever the priest had said before this. But then he ultimately says, do not be afraid of anything. Never be afraid, and do not grieve. Just let repentance not slacken in you, and God will forgive everything. There is not and cannot be in the whole world such a sin that the Lord will not forgive one who truly repents of it. A man even cannot commit so great a sin as would exhaust God's boundless love. How could there be a sin that exceeds God's love? Only take care that you repent without ceasing and chase away fear altogether. Believe that God loves you so that as you cannot conceive of it, even with your sin and in your sin, he loves you. And there is more joy in heaven over one repentant sinner than over ten righteous men. That was said long ago. Notice the profundity of what the elder is doing here. It's a throwaway passage. It takes less than a page to describe. But we get this glimpse of this woman who has suffered horrible things, has resorted to an inconceivable crime as a consequence, and now begs forgiveness for the sin. And the elder, you'll notice, doesn't let her off the hook. Repent constantly, he instructs her. This is not a lightweight penance. This is not, say, a few Hail Marys and you'll be out of, out of the hot water. No. The elder tells her, you have to repent constantly, all of the time, all of the time. Yes, it is a horrible, grievous sin. I do not deny that. Yes, I appreciate your circumstances. It is still an awful sin, and you will suffer for it, and you will repent for it. 
But that doesn't mean that you will not be forgiven. God's love is so great that it will transcend even this most terrible of sins. No sin, he says, is so great that it will exhaust God's boundless love. On the one hand, he offers consolation. You are still loved. You will be forgiven. But on the other hand, he offers judgment. But you must repent without ceasing. This is a grievous, serious situation that this woman is in. And it is right for her to have walked 300 miles to seek his judgment, to seek that consolation. This is part of that penance. But notice how different her evil is from the evil of the men we've been talking about, Miusov, Ivan, Fyodor Pavlovich. Her evil is straightforward, simple. It is still evil. It is still wrong for her to have done this. But it is a simple evil. It is not compounded by lies or by concoctions, by evasions. No, she faces it. She recognizes, I have sinned, can I be forgiven? And the elder says, yes! Because of God's goodness, because of God's greatness. Now notice the last woman that he talks to is the Lady of Little Faith, Madame Koklikov. And this is an interesting sort of contrast. On the one hand, we see all of these peasant women who are suffering, really and legitimately, truly and directly suffering, who are in circumstances so abominable that they require this elder's help just to get through the day. They, in some sense, deserve the elder's love more than anyone else who is here. Definitely more than Fyodor Pavlovich and Musov, who are, you know, bullshitting everybody with their various acts, with their various, like, elaborate deceptions and nonsense and pride. They come in humility and ask for forgiveness, ask for consolation, and the elder gives it to them gladly. Madame Koklikov is the intermediary. She, too, is honest. She, too, admits that she lacks faith. Notice on page 56 where she confesses this to him. Oh, how grateful I am to you. You see, I close my eyes and think, if everyone has faith, where does it come from? And then they say that it all came originally from fear of the awesome phenomena of nature, that there is nothing to it at all. What? I think all my life I've believed that I die and suddenly there's nothing and only burdock will go, grow on my grave as I read in one writer? It's terrible. What, what will give me back my faith? Though I believed only when I was a little child, mechanically, without thinking about anything, how? How can it be proved? I've come now to throw myself at your feet and ask you about it. If I miss this chance, too, then surely no one will answer me for the rest of my life. How can it be proved? How can one be convinced? Oh, miserable me. I look around and see that for everyone else, almost everyone, it's all the same. No one worries about it anymore. And I'm the only one who can't bear it. It's devastating. Devastating. Notice that Madame Koklikov, she is, in fact, suffering. But it's a level removed. She admittedly has a pretty bad situation as well. You'll notice that her daughter, Lisa, is the one who has the paralyzed legs. Like, she specifically came to the elder to perform a healing. And she mentions, you know, I was here the other day, and now Lisa's doing much better, and she can even get out of the chair, and she says that she's going to be dancing soon. And the elder's like, whoa, hold on, back it up. That, that wasn't necessarily me. I, I didn't say that I was going to perform the healing. And even the, the monks get really uncomfortable about it. They're like, do you have the, the you know... Do you have the qualifications for this? And the elder's like, this, this, it, she's excited. Like, 
the woman is excited. She's got a bit of the placebo effect going on here. Or at least Zosima seems to think so. If there was healing, he says, it came from God, and I have very little to do with it. Um, but notice that Madame Koklikov, as much as that is sort of the primary direct thing that she's worried about that, that is, in fact, causing her pain, it's not the thing that she's the most upset about. Unlike the peasant women who are, like, legitimately concerned about, you know, my child is dead, can I come back to from my grieving? Can I be anything but a shrieker, as they've been described several times at this point? Or the woman who murdered her husband, can I be forgiven? Like, these are legit, real, direct problems. Come to, and they're coming to the father in humility to ask for, for consolation or forgiveness or to deal with them in some way. Madame Klokolkov has at least another level of removal from her suffering. She doesn't believe. She doesn't have the faith that the peasant women do. The peasant women have great faith, but this is a lady of little faith. But this isn't necessarily an indication that she's worse as a consequence. Notice that Zosima treats her with the same patience, the same love that he treats the peasant women. Her, his response is, no doubt it is devastating, this lack of faith. One cannot prove anything here, he stresses. Obviously, if you could prove it, it wouldn't be faith. But it is possible to be convinced. But notice what it is that he answers. When she asks, how will I be convinced, his response is, by the experience of active love. Try to love your neighbors actively and tirelessly. The more you succeed in loving, the more you'll be convinced of the existence of God and the immortality of your soul. And if you reach complete selflessness in the love of your neighbor, then undoubtedly you will believe. And no doubt will even be able to enter your soul. This has been tested. It is certain. This is so wildly insightful that I'm just staggered when I read it. Like, I've read this book three times at this point, and I'm still just floored by how we're, like, 56 pages into Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, and somehow this is not the stuff that anyone is talking about. Like, when people talk about the Brothers Karamazov and the wisdom of Dostoevsky and the great insights, usually talk about the Grand Inquisitor or Ivan's pronouncement that, you know, if God is if God doesn't exist, then everything is permitted. Or you talk about, like, the various characters that Dostoevsky has insights onto. Look at what he's saying here. You lack faith? Then practice love. If you love your neighbor, if you devote yourself to actively loving people, the faith will follow. This is certain, we're told. Like, on some level, this is almost blasphemous. Like, the pronouncement that Elder Rosasima is making here is effectively, there is a solution to faith. You don't have faith? Well, go find it. It can be found. It is out there. I can prove to you. There is a 100% guarantee attached to this that if you love first, faith will follow. And this is not an Orthodox thing. It's definitely not a Protestant thing. It's definitely not a Catholic thing. It's not an Orthodox thing either by any extent of the imagination. This is just straight up Dostoevsky interpreting Christianity for us. He is doing theology here in the voice of Elder Zosima. And notice that we have no reason to doubt Elder Zosima. We've been given information. We've been told that Elder Zosima is, in fact, seriously respected. Notice the way that he's interacting with all these characters, how he completely diffuses Fyodor Pavlovich's nonsense and Yusov's self-grandioseness, how he even manages to come up to Ivan's level and then surpass him. 
Elder Zosima can do anything in this novel. He's being presented as infallible. And with that in mind, that means that Dostoevsky is laying down what he truly believes here. Maybe it's not true. Maybe we should be taking Zosima at a remove, and we'll have to look through the book to see if there are times when Zosima can be faulted, when there are... And there will be characters who don't consider him as authoritative as he seems to be here. But notice the solution. Love. It is something profoundly missing from all of the characters that we've called evil. Miusov does not love. Miusov loves himself is proud of himself, is concerned with all of his big-time ideas, but notice those ideas do not involve love. The Enlightenment philosophy and the European philosophy that, that Musov is just immersed in, that whole liberal thinking that is sweeping through the 19th century European scene, love is not what it's about. Maybe compassion, maybe humanity, maybe human decency, maybe that sort of abstract love for humanity that that Fyodor Pavlovich and, and Zosima talk about a little bit later, which you'll notice, this is something that also comes up in Dostoevsky, this idea that, like, I love humanity, but I don't love individual people, and the more time I spend with individual people, the more I find myself disliking them and loving humanity as a general concept. Zosima is really suspicious of that kind of thinking. He doesn't like that. No, love specifically, that's what he tells Madame Koklikov. And he says, you know, you, you seem to be in danger, but if you in fact can love in this way, and the evidence that he has is that she can, then she'll be fine. That's what's important to him. Love actively. Make that your responsibility. Because on some level, that's what Dostoevsky is doing as well. Notice that all of these characters, Musov, Fyodor Pavlovich, Ivan, all of these characters with all of their problems and all of their horribleness, Miusov's pettiness and, and pride, Fyodor Pavlovich's absurdity and viciousness, like, Dostoevsky doesn't condemn them for it. They're not presented as evil. Like, any Disney villain from the 1990s movies is more straight-up evil than any of the characters that we see here. Because in those movies, that's all that they're meant to be, villains. And the assumption there is that there are beings, people, forces, so relentlessly evil as to be beyond forgiveness. That they need to be that. So we can hate them. The audience needs to hate them in order for the hero to triumph, in order for you know the big climax at the end to, to have real threat and merit. But notice Dostoevsky never does this. There are no villains in Dostoevsky's novels. There never are. The closest we get are characters like Fyodor Pavlovich, who are bad. They're terrible. They behave in horrible ways. They do terrible things to each other. But when we see them doing this, we are to look at them the way that Zosima does. Why is Fyodor Pavlovich seducing the same woman that his son loves? Because he's in pain. Because he suffers. Because he is hurting. Because he is scared. Why is Miusov judgmental and throws around these, these really nasty comments and seems to be really critical of these monks and, and the elder especially? Because he's insecure. 
because he doesn't believe in himself. Because he thinks that his only goodness comes from the fact that he is smart and that he's been to Paris a few times. Basically, he's the person who says, you know, I used to live in New York. Like, why does that matter? Why does that contribute to your self-worth? Zosima's self-worth comes from his connection to God. And Zosima prescribes as the way to self-worth is love. Practicing Christian values. And in some sense, it's really remarkable here and really important to notice that Dostoevsky is positioned with Zosima, with Alexei, against Miyusov, Fyodor Pavlovich, and even Ivan Fyodorovich. All of those characters are immersed in this world of liberal values. Dostoevsky is a conservative. But not a conservative in the sense of a nationalist, not a conservative in the sense of, you know, like, oh, we need to strip the rights from certain people, or we need to, you know, hold some people as better than others, or, or value, like, Dostoevsky has his moments where he gets super nationalistic. He definitely has a line in the whole writer's diary where he talks about how, like, Russia is fated to lead the Slavic people into the bliss of, like, the Orthodox faith. It's, it's weird. It gets weird, for sure. But when I say that Dostoevsky is conservative, what I mean is that at the end of the day, in his novels especially, he is, his fundamental principles, his fundamental philosophy is rooted in his faith. And his faith is rooted in love. Not for humanity in some general sense, like the liberals tend to talk about. Not in, you know, we're going to advance humanity and then they're going to solve all their problems because of all the institutions that we've built. No, 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 no. We're talking about simple love, kindness, generosity, understanding. Looking at a person who is as depraved as Fyodor Pavlovich, who is so immersed in his own evil that he can't even find a way out of it and hurts everyone around him out of reflex, and saying, that person deserves to be loved. That person is trying to be good and just failing horribly. That's what makes Dostoevsky so rich here. But that brings us to Ivan. Because Ivan is really complicated in this situation. Notice how the other characters interact with him. On the one hand, we've got Musov, you know, the supposed liberal. Musov sucks up to Ivan. Like, notice the way that Musov interacts with Ivan when Ivan is giving his grand speech. Musov resents it. On the one hand, he's trying to get in the door. I want to talk too. Like, I want to try and contribute my, my ten cents. And Ivan is beyond him. Like, Ivan published this article on the ecclesiastical courts and the fathers of the monastery, the abbot, Father Pacey and Father Yosef. They're both talking to Ivan as an equal. Like, he's a 20-year-old kid who's talking with these 40, 50-year-old monks who have been in the ecclesiastical system for a long time. They're talking theology. And they're talking at this really high level. And on the one hand... Musov is like, I gotta prove myself. I am also a man of the world. I too know what I'm talking about. But he doesn't. He's an idiot. And every time that he tries to talk, he's sort of kicked out. Like, this is this whole conversation is above him. Fyodor Pavlovich, you'll notice, doesn't even try. On some level, I think Fyodor Pavlovich is proud of Ivan. Wants to let him have the limelight. On another level, it's entirely possible that Fyodor Pavlovich is scared of Ivan. And you'll notice that Ivan gets scary by the end of this. 
But notice, too, the way that Musoff undercuts what Ivan has to say. Ivan and the monks are talking about this ecclesiastical court system. The trouble here, the, the, the issue that's being discussed here in 19th century Russian society is that there are all these new courts that have been built in the, in the 19th century. Like with the liberation of the serfs and with you know, the reforms of Peter the Great and then Catherine the Great and now of Alexander II, there are all of these new systems in place. All of these new ideas that are getting kicked around. And one of the things is this new legal system. Um, there is now an elaborate court system run by the government, which is sort of hanging over the, the nobility, the Zemstvo court. Um, we also have justices of the peace, and the peasants kind of deal with their own thing. But at the same time as there is the state court, there has been for a long time an ecclesiastical court existing alongside it. Like to this day, the Russian... Orthodox Church has an ecclesiastical court, one that deals with civil issues. And it's like 95% divorces at this point. At this point in the 19th century Russian world, divorce is still one of the big things that the Orthodox Church is dealing with, but that's the problem. That wasn't originally their only purview, and now there's some jurisdictional problems. Some of the things that are now supposed to be for the secular courts are being handled by the ecclesiastical courts, and the question is, which one's going to blink first? Which one's going to duck out of the, the fight? Who, who has the real authority in this situation? And you'll notice that on the one hand, Ivan is suggesting that the ecclesiastical court should be held to be superior to the secular court. This is what makes Musov freak out. This is why Musov calls it potentially ultramontanism. Ultramontanism was the 19th century practice in the Catholic Church where they talked about the doctrine of papal infallibility. This is a really new doctrine, by the way. Like Nobody called the Pope infallible until the 19th century. Um, it was kind of a power play on the part of the Church by a lot of people's reckoning. A lot of governments did not take kindly to this. Um, and in fact, this was part of the motivation for uh, Otto von Bismarck's, Bismarck's reforms, his like unification of Germany under the Prussian flag was he was very much leveraging the people's dislike for ultramontanism against the predominantly Catholic Austrians. Like, this is a big deal, is what it comes down to. So when Miusov says, you know, Ivan, you're saying that the ecclesiastical courts should have authority over the secular courts? Why, that's just ultramontanism. Notice that Father Pacey and company are like, um, there are no mountains here. The assumption being, no, that's not what we're doing here. Like, they kind of quietly and gently sort of rebuff Miusov here. It's not the same thing. Ultramontanism is a Catholic thing. It's about fallibility and infallibility and church authority. The ecclesiastical court system that Ivan is talking about is actually something rooted in theology. What Ivan is saying is, if the ecclesiastical courts really do believe that they are the representatives of God, and if they take their authority from God, by the logic of Christianity, they should have authority over the state. Like, this was always the case. In Catholicism in the 11th and 12th centuries, there were a great deal of conflicts between church and state. And at that time, it was generally assumed that the spiritual, the spiritual world should have authority over the secular world. God should have authority over all kings, all, over all principalities, over all states. And there were multiple occasions where the Catholic Church would be, you know, at loggerheads with, like, the English king or something, and the Catholic Church would excommunicate them, and the, church, and the king would have to capitulate. This is what Ivan is pointing to. He's like, okay, so if the church really believes that it is more authoritative than the secular world, 
at the end of the day, the ideal circumstance for the ecclesiastical court is to be greater than the secular court. And the secular court will be absorbed into the ecclesiastical court, not the other way around, as the liberals have largely asked and held for. And Zosima leaps on this idea and elaborates on it. Yes, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. And yes, it's an ideal situation. Both of them acknowledge this. Nobody is calling for this. This is not a hotbed of revolutionaries here. This is theological doctrine that's being disagreed with. And notice that Ivan is keeping up with both these really authoritative monks, these very learned people, and the elder himself. And the elder respects Ivan for this. We even get this moment where the, where the elder specifically says that Ivan is subject to these great ideas. The elder compliments him on being a man of profundity. But he also acknowledges that that's dangerous. Notice that when Zosima talks about this idea that Ivan is kicking around, this whole, you know, ecclesiastical court system, where Zosima goes isn't the same place where Ivan goes. Ivan is talking about the difference between church and state. Ivan is talking about these things as institutions. But Zosima immediately starts talking about the person. Here is how it is, the elder began. All this exile, the hard labor, and formerly with floggings does not reform anyone. And above all, does not even frighten almost any criminal. And the number of crimes not only does not diminish, but increases all the more. Surely you will admit that. And it turns out that society thus is not protected at all. For although the harmful member is mechanically cut off and sent far away out of sight, another criminal appears at once to take his place, perhaps even two others. If anything protects society, even in our time, and even reforms the criminal himself and transforms him into a different person, again, it is Christ's law alone, which manifests itself in the acknowledgement of one's own conscience. Only if he acknowledges his guilt as a son of Christ's society, that is, of the church, will he acknowledge his guilt before society itself, that is, before the church. Thus, the modern criminal is capable of acknowledging his guilt before the church alone, and not before the state. Notice what we're saying here. On the one hand, we are speaking to a very liberal issue in the 19th century, namely the prisons don't work. Criminal recidivism is enormous. Nobody is reformed by their stay in the prison system. They're not designed to do that. And even Elder Zosima condemns these institutions for that. Nobody is fixed by this. Because the criminal does not see themselves as having a responsibility to the state. They take because the state has failed them. They lie, cheat, steal, and break laws because the laws do not protect them. They can't protect them. There is no personal relationship between the criminal and the law. There is no loyalty to be gotten from the criminal to the state. Why should there be? What has the state done for them? But there is culpability between the criminal and God. And this is something that Christianity has always taught. Like, this is not groundbreaking. This is just the doctrine of sin. This is just saying that, like, people sin, and the only way to fix sin is with Jesus. You will not fix sin with systems, with institutions, with prisons, with, you know, elaborate laws, with incentivization programs, with welfare, with anything that the state can provide. Money will not fix sin, and security will not fix sin, and nothing that the state can offer will fix sin. What does fix sin? Jesus fix sin. God fix sin. Love fixes sin. 
that's what Zossima is saying here. Again, he brings it down to this personal level. And notice that Ivan agrees with this, because Ivan knows the theory. But Zosima, we've seen, also knows the practice. He knows what it means to love. We literally just saw him do it with all the peasant women. We literally just saw him say this exact thing to Madame Koklikov. Ivan, however, is looking at it from the intellectual's perspective. The church insists that it has the authority to forgive sin, that it alone can forgive sin. The church's authority derives from God, who is absolute, and therefore the church's authority is greater than the secular authority, which does not derive its authority from God. It, in fact, derives it from the people or the leaders or whatever institutions are in place that have the seal of approval of an Enlightenment-era-style democratic or republican government structure. Ivan acknowledges the elder is saying the truth with the assumption that God exists. But importantly, Miyusov immediately calls this point out. Didn't Ivan also say that if God doesn't exist, all is permitted? That without the ensured truth of religion, that this is the case. So notice what Miyusov says on page 66 to 67. Allow me to relate a little anecdote, gentlemen, Miyusov suddenly said imposingly, and with a sort of especially grand air. In Paris, several years ago now, soon after the December Revolution, I happened once while visiting an acquaintance that a very, very important and official person to meet their most curious gentleman. This individual was not exactly an undercover agent, but something like the supervisor of an entire team of political agents, rather an influential person in its way. Seizing the chance out of great curiosity, I struck up a conversation with him, and since he was there, not as an acquaintance, but as a subordinate official, would come with a certain kind of report. He, seeing for his part how I was received by his superior, deigned to show me some frankness. Notice Miusov is much more interested in the actual, like, hey, look at how awesome I am, and my hobnobbing with various French awesome peoples, than actually getting to the, bit, the important bit of the story. Like, here we have Ivan and Elder Zosima talking about this high intellectual idea, Ivan from the perspective of the philosophical, Zosima from the perspective of the practical and the actual effects on people's lives and souls. Miyusov immediately tries to turn this into an opportunity to sort of name drop and self-aggrandize. But what he ultimately concludes... The topic was socialist revolutionaries, he says, who then, by the way, were being persecuted. Omitting the main essence of the conversation, I shall quote only one most curious remark that this person suddenly let drop. We are not, in fact, afraid of all these socialists, anarchists, atheists, and revolutionaries, he said. We keep an eye on them, and their movements are known to us. But there are some special people among them, although not many. These are believers in God and Christians, and at the same time socialists. They are the ones we are most afraid of. They are terrible people. A socialist Christian is more dangerous than a socialist atheist. His words struck me even then, but now, here, gentlemen, I suddenly, I somehow suddenly recalled them. And Father Pacey immediately asks, that is, you applied them to us and see us as socialists? Notice that this is first off when Dimitri walks in, and this conversation very much gets derailed. But at the same time, notice Miusov is undercutting Ivan's point saying that it is the Christian socialists who are truly dangerous, even more than the atheists, anarchists, and revolutionaries. But also, Father Zosima sort of gently rebuffs him on this one as well, emphasizing that Christianity isn't the same thing as socialism. And I want to stress this just a little bit here, 
because this is a conversation that I'm seeing happen on a fairly regular basis in certain areas of the internet as well. Like, there's a lot of liberally-minded individuals who are keen to emphasize that Jesus' ministry definitely resembles socialism more than it does capitalism, that Jesus was, in a sense, much more interested in democracy than he is in merit and right. And for sure, this is something that the American conservative church has kind of lost track of. But at the same time, I would like to point to what Dostoevsky is kind of pointing at here. Christianity may be closer in alignment to socialism than it is to capitalism, but only accidentally. Christians are not socialists. Even the most socialist, positive Christian cannot be, in good faith, a socialist first and foremost. What makes Christianity socialist is the assumptions that Christianity itself makes, the stuff that Father Zosima represents, the fact that that love for one another, that love for one's neighbor, has to be absolute, constant, and universal. That's what makes it similar to socialism. Capitalism leaves people aside in its way. Capitalism refuses to acknowledge the debt of, you know, the rich to the poor. Capitalism does not think that there is anything worthwhile in letting people who are incompetent go ahead and keep on living. But socialism does, and so does Christianity. Christianity is interested in the natural worth of people. It is not interested in giving out honors according to what these do to people. People don't deserve things in Christianity. Socialism says everybody should get the same amount of money. Everybody should be able to have a living wage. Everybody should be allowed to, you know, live their life and then contribute as much as they want to the public good, the social good, however you want to consider it. People's worth is not dependent on their output, in short, according to socialism. And Christianity agrees. But where socialism does this because of democratic ideals, those sort of enlightenment principles like all humans are created equal, Christianity is doing it not because all humans are created equal, but because God said love each other. That's a huge difference. And at the end of the day, what socialism will produce is a society of largely indifferent people who generally make sure that everybody can coexist because rationality dictates and because this is for the best interest of everyone. For Christianity, there's no selfishness involved at all, or there shouldn't be. For Christianity, there is warmth to this relationship. So socialism is cold. You get yours because everybody gets theirs, and it would be unfair to treat you otherwise. We are obligated by your humanity to treat you like a human. But in Christianity, there is no obligation. There's just love. God loved us, and so we are saved. And as a consequence, we love others, because God saved us. And that's all there is to it. And it shouldn't be you feel obligated to do this. You are obligated to do this, but you should be acting out of love. You should be acting out of recognition that Christ's sacrifice is so great that you'll never be able to pay it off. And Dostoevsky is emphasizing the difference here through Father Zosima. Where Miusov stresses... Yes, Christian socialists are dangerous, and Christian socialists are especially potent in their convictions, especially political in their motivations. Musov doesn't get the picture. To some degree, Ivan does. 
Ivan recognizes this. Ivan understands the theory underlying it. But at the end of the day, even Ivan is removed because Ivan doesn't have the conviction. He doesn't have the belief. So notice that Miusov undercuts him again. Once Miusov has lost, again, the focus of the conversation, he go, he says on page 69, Generally, again, I ask your permission to drop the subject, Pyotr Alexandrovich repeated, and instead let me tell you another anecdote, gentlemen, about Ivan Fyodorovich himself, a most typical and interesting one. Skipping down a little ways. No more than five days ago, at a local gathering predominantly of ladies, he solemnly announced in the discussion that there is decidedly nothing in the whole world that would make men love their fellow men. That there exists no law of nature that man should love mankind, and that if there is and has been any love on earth up until now, it has come not from natural law, but solely from people's belief in their immortality. Ivan Fyodorovich added parenthetically that that is what all natural law consists of, so that were mankind's belief in its immortality to be destroyed, not only love, but also any living power to continue the life of the world would at once dry up in it. Not only that, but then nothing would be immoral any longer. Everything would be permitted, even anthropophagy. And even that is not all. He ended with the assertion that for every separate person, like ourselves, for instance, who believes neither in God nor in his own immortality, the moral law of nature ought to change immediately into the exact opposite of the formal religious law, and that egoism, even to the point of evildoing, should not only be permitted to man, but should be acknowledged as the necessary, the most reasonable, and all but the noblest result of his situation. From this paradox, gentlemen, you may deduce what else our dear eccentric and paradoxalist Ivan Fyodorovich may be pleased to proclaim, and perhaps still intends to proclaim. Notice what we're saying here. Ivan has on the one hand suggested that if the church is in fact authoritative, it should be the highest authority ever. But if it has no authority, then all is permitted, including evil. And in fact, evil is the recommended course of action if there is no God, if there is no immortality, if there is no reason to be good, if there is no ultimate post-death punishment for evil, then evil is the way to get ahead. And notice Zosima's reaction to this. On page 70, he asks, Can it be that you really hold this conviction about the consequences of the exhaustion of men's faith and the immortality of their souls? The elder suddenly asked Ivan Fyodorovich. And Ivan responds, Yes, it was my contention. There is no virtue if there is no immortality. And the elder responds, You are blessed if you believe so, or else most unhappy. Why unhappy? Ivan Fyodorovich smiled. Because in all likelihood, you yourself do not believe either in the immortality of your soul or even in what you have written about the church and the church question. Maybe you're right. But still, I wasn't quite joking either, Ivan Fyodorovich suddenly and strangely confessed, by the way, with a quick blush. Notice Ivan is on the spot here. Just as Fyodor Pavlovich covers up his own convictions, covers up his own insecurities with a series of lies and nonsense, with the buffoonery, Notice that Ivan is kind of doing the same thing with his intellectualism. Ivan has great doubts, and he covers it up by building these brilliant, com complicated ideas. But the Elder cuts through this as well. Either you are blessed or most unhappy. Either you do not believe in the immortality of the, of the soul, and you do not believe what you've written about the church. You're just following the logical consequences of the things that you've observed and understand, but do not yourself believe. And Ivan Fyodorovich 
mentions he's not joking. He wants to believe. Maybe you are right, he says, and blushes because he has been exposed here by the father, by Zosima, because that's what he does. The elder always reveals, always cuts to the quick. You weren't quite joking, that is true, the elder says. This idea is not yet resolved in your heart, and it torments it. But a martyr, too, sometimes likes to toy with his despair, also from despair, as it were. For the time being, you two are toying, out of despair, with your magazine articles and drawing room discussions, without believing in your own dialectics and smirking at them with your heart aching inside you. The question is not resolved in you, and there lies your great grief, for it urgently demands resolution. Zosima points to the uncertainty, just as he did with Madame Koplikov. You were toying with these ideas from your despair, trying to talk yourself into the faith that you know would solve this problem. But Ivan responds, can it be resolved in myself? Resolved in a positive way? Even if it cannot be resolved in a positive way, the elder responds, it will never be resolved in a negative way either. You yourself know this property of your heart, and therein lies the whole of its torment. But thank the Creator that He has given you a lofty heart, capable of being tormented by such a torment, to set your mind on things that are above, for our true homeland is in heaven. May God grant that your heart's decision overtake you still on earth, and may God bless your path. And notice that He raises His hand to bless him. And Ivan stops him. Rising from his chair, went over to him, received his blessing, and having kissed his hand, returned silently to his place. He looked firm and serious. This action, as well as the whole preceding conversation with the elder, so unexpected from Ivan Fyodorovich, somehow struck everyone with its mysteriousness and even a certain solemnity, so that for a moment they all fell silent, and Alyosha looked almost frightened. But Miusov suddenly heaved his shoulders, and at the same moment Fyodor Pavlovich jumped from the chair, and everything goes nuts again. Notice, this is what separates Ivan from Miusov and the liberals generally. Ivan does have a greater mind than they do. He can wrestle with these ideas more effectively than Miusov does. Miusov is a liberal just to show off to his friends and his compatriots and just seem self-important. Ivan is an intellectual because he's scared of something in himself. Because he can't solve these problems for himself. And talking through them is the only way that he can, on the one hand, work through it, and on the other hand, cover up his own terrified uncertainty. And the other points out, this is greatness. You have been given a mind that is focused on the things above, just as the scriptures say. And again, we get that quote there. Focus your mind on the things that are above, for our true homeland is in heaven. This is straight scripture. And he applies it to Ivan. But with that greatness comes great danger for Ivan. Notice that this is on the point of a knife here. On the one hand, there is this incredible conviction that Ivan is playing with. A conviction so deep that it comes right to the root of Christian theology and commends Christian theology as the greatest force in the entire world. But if it is not that, then it is nothing. And the alternative is Terrible depravity, total selfishness, complete selfish evil. Nothing will be forbidden. Everything is permitted. That's the fundamental philosophical problem that Ivan is wrestling with here, which Elder Zosima immediately picks up on and teases out of him. 
Like, honestly, on some level, it almost makes sense that this chapter doesn't work. That you miss all of this the first time through. Because this is going to be the fundamental issue that Ivan is wrestling with the entire book. And it's going to take the entire book for us to sort of see it conclude. See where it leads us. And Zosima, in an instant, picks up on it. Tells us what's going on. And Ivan acknowledges this as well. He now receives the blessing. Where he wouldn't before. Like, when Miusov does the first bow in his sort of constipated inability to acknowledge the Elder's authority, and then is immediately mocked by Fyodor Pavlovich, you'll notice Ivan bows as well, seriously, solemnly, believing in the possible authority of these Elders, of these monks. Now he goes so far as to receive the blessing. He initiates himself into the religion. He allows himself for a moment to be a believer, or to at least try on being a believer, trying on the elder's blessing, trying on this conviction, this faith, even though he hasn't actually grasped it yet. Just as he is trying it on with his letters and his articles and his drawing room conversations, as the elder puts it, so he tries it on here by being blessed, by accepting the elder's blessing, by following the monastic traditions here. But he doesn't believe it yet. He's still thinking it through. And notice that everything falls apart after this. This is after Dimitri has entered, so now Dimitri and Fyodor immediately throw down, and Dimitri is accusing his father of withholding the money, and Fyodor is saying that, no, Dimitri has already blown through all of his money, and he even kicked the butt of this, like, random distinguished captain, only it turns out that Dimitri specifically beat up this captain because the captain was told by Fyodor to bribe Grushenka into, like, ruining Dimitri. It gets real ugly, and I don't really want to take out the all of the details here, all the soap opera in this of this because we're going to actually see Grushenka soon and we're going to actually be able to s interact with these characters and right now it's all just hearsay and rumor. Suffice it to say that Fyodor once again is lying here, is lying to cover up his evil and is lying in jest. He is making a joke out of Dimitri and Dimitri himself is deadly serious. Like scary serious here. Notice the big concluding line here on page 74, the one that gives us the title of this chapter, Why is such a man alive? Dmitry Fyodorovich growled in a muffled voice, now nearly beside himself with fury, somehow raising his shoulders peculiarly so that he looked almost hunchbacked. No, tell me, can he be allowed to go on dishonoring the earth with himself? And Fyodor Pavlovich immediately jumps on this. Do you hear, you monks? Do you hear the parasite? There is the answer to your shame. What shame this creature, this woman of bad behavior, is perhaps holier than all of you gentlemen, soul-saving hieromonks. Maybe she fell in her youth, being influenced by her environment, but she has loved much, and even Christ forgave... And the monks are like, whoa, 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 that's not what was meant by that passage. Grushenka is a woman of ill repute, possibly even prostituting herself. And at the one hand, you have both Dmitri and Fyodor praising her as being holy as being a woman suffering in her own right, perhaps like the peasant women who came to Elder Zosima, but it's going to be complicated. They both love Grushenka and admire her, somehow. But they are also rivals over her. And Fyodor is trying to get Grushenka to repudiate and reject Dmitri as part of his overall agenda, while Dmitri himself is apparently, according to Fyodor Pavlovich, trying to buy off her affection. 
with all of his parties and money that he no longer has because Fyodor Pavlovich has kept it from him or given it all to him or whatever the case may be. And notice Fyodor Pavlovich going too far again. She loved much, and Christ said those who loved much. No, that's not what he meant by that. When Christ said, blessed are those who love much, he's not talking about prostitutes. And, but Fyodor Pavlovich doubles down on it. No, exactly that kind. You are saving your souls here on cabbage and you think you're righteous. You eat gudgeons, one gudgeon a day, and you think you can buy God with gudgeons. What Fyodor Pavlovich is suggesting is because Grushenka feels, because she is in fact suffering, because she is in fact in this world, she is experiencing God's love and loving more than the monks do who live this ascetic existence. And to some degree he's right, and Father Zosima would in fact agree with him. But notice, this is exactly when Zosima intervenes. He gets up and he bows to Dmitri so deeply that his head touches the floor. In some way, he has just given Ivan a great deal of honor by emphasizing that he is blessed, by emphasizing that his mind is on the, the you know, things above, and then explicitly blessing him, which Ivan surprisingly receives. Here he acknowledges Dmitri as well, bowing to his suffering, expressing his love for him. And it diffuses the entire situation. Like here are Fyodor and Pavlovich literally threatening each other's lives. Fyodor and Dmitri attacking each other. Dmitri literally saying, why does such a man exist? Can he be allowed to go on? And Fyodor Pavlovich correctly identifies this as, do you hear the parasite, the person threatening his own father's life? And Elder Zosima puts it all to bed by bowing to Dmitri, acknowledging his suffering, acknowledging his own pain. In a sense, he is saying that Dimitri is correct. But notice that Radikin in the next chapter has a different interpretation on this. Radikin says that this was a trick. That he specifically bowed to Dimitri knowing that Dimitri is going to do something rash. So on page 78, Rakitin says, A crime in your nice little family. It will take place between your dear brothers and your nice rich papa. So Father Zosima bumps his forehead on the ground for the future just in case. Afterwards they'll say, Ah, it's what the holy elder foretold, prophesied. Though bumping your forehead on the ground isn't much of a prophecy. No, they'll say, it was an emblem, an allegory. The devil knows what. They'll proclaim it, they'll remember. He foresaw the crime and marked the criminal. It's always like that with holy fools. They cross themselves before a tavern and cast stones at the temple. Your elder is the same. He drives the just man out with a stick and bows at the murderer's feet. Rakuten is an interesting case here. Notice that Rakuten apparently personally knows Grushenka. Alyosha jumps to the conclusion that he's actually related to Grushenka, although Rakuten immediately denies this, which leads us to believe that maybe Rakuten is actually having an affair with Grushenka, which just complicates the whole business. But notice, too, that Dostoevsky also classifies Rakuten as a liberal. Several of the lines that he drops here, his most characteristic phrases, um, like the one about, um, on the one hand, but on the other hand, like, this is actually a direct quote from one of Dostoevsky's ideological opponents, a famous liberal writing for a different periodical. Um, Rakuten apparently is very well versed 
in liberal publications from Moscow and St. Petersburg. And there's even that comment that Ivan has apparently made at one point about how Rakuten is one day going to either become an Archimandrite, like a uh, head of the, of the priesthood, a head of the monastery, or he's going to end up making a publication and he's going to print off all of this liberal trash and he's going to get very vindictive and petty about it and then ultimately get even a house on this one area in St. Petersburg. Like Ivan Fyodorovich picks the district where he's going to live. Notice that Rakuten, like Musov and like Ivan, is a liberal. But he's a liberal of a different color. Musov is just into liberalism because it affords him honor, before, because it makes him seem important. Ivan is into liberalism because he's wrestling with these ideas honestly and truly, and he's affiliated with the liberals because this is one of the alternatives to his really big, like, prevalent question. Rakuten is a liberal for the sake of liberalism. He is a dyed-in-the-wool angry liberal. He is the kind of liberal who gets on Twitter and takes special pleasure in denouncing people who have been canceled. He is a liberal whip, a liberal policeman. He is absolutely interested in the business of doing the ugliest parts of liberalism. In enforcing liberalism, in writing angry, vitriolic, political things in order to rile people up. That's Rakuten. And he's dangerous as a consequence. Still beloved, notice, you know, Ivan sort of takes this pot shot at him about becoming an Archimandrite or becoming a, you know, a liberal editor. Dostoevsky himself seems to recognize the trajectory that Rakuten is on, that there are these angry young men spoiling for a fight who find the, the vent for this anger in liberal publications. It's not a terribly flattering portrait of Rakuten that we see here, or of Dostoevsky's ideological adversaries, but it is still a human one. Rakuten's not a villain. He is, too, somebody to be sympathized with, somebody to be loved. He kind of just needs a hug. And maybe he wouldn't be quite so angry all the time. Notice that all the characters kind of have that problem. Fyodor Pavlovich just needs somebody to tell him that it's okay to be who he is. Frequently enough that he can actually do it, the way that Zosima does. Miusov just needs somebody to pat him on the head and say that he's a good boy. That he's, you know, a decent human being. So he can quit being so concerned about being smart. And Ivan... Ivan needs somebody to just give him a hug and tell him what the answer is to this problem that he's wrestling with. All of these characters have these naked flaws, which the Elder Zosima is especially good at exposing, and also to some degree solving, salving, consoling. But of course that's not the end here. It all ends in the scandal. Musov goes off to dinner with the Father Superior, and he's feeling especially magnanimous. He feels bad about what happened at the Elder's Cell, so now he's going to, like, forgive everything. By all means, take the land rights. By all means, fish the river. Whatever. He even has this particularly telling line where he addresses the Father Superior as, with like, this really ridiculous, you know, like, 
praise of some kind. Like, I think he calls him your most eminent reverence, which is just totally not how you're supposed to address this. Like, Musov is feeling very generous at this point. He feels bad about, you know, all of his standoffishness before. But at the same time, he walks in, and he and Ivan are sitting down to dinner, and then, bam, Fyodor Pavlovich comes in, and he's insulting the monks, and he's insulting Musov, and he's insulting the elder, and he, like, leaves, and he says he's going to go and debauch, and why doesn't Maximov come along with him? And Maximov does! Maximov, the landowner, starts running for the carriage. And notice that Ivan kicks him off. And this is a particularly important detail that Dostoevsky like, emphasizes by making it the detail that we end on here. On some level, Ivan is more than what he appears to be. Ivan has spent this entire time being largely professional in the way that he's treated these monks. He is believed in what they have to say, and at the same time he has been satisfying his father as the good son, in some sense, who is smart and able to carry on a conversation without any of the insecurities that, you know, Fyodor Pavlovich or Alexander Piotrovich have, have both sort of demonstrated here. But at this moment, when it gets to its most absurd point, when it is Fyodor Pavlovich and Maximov getting into a droshki in order to go back to their home and just drink and debauch the, their way through the night, Ivan immediately puts a stop to it, kicks him off violently, throws him into the dirt, which is not what you're supposed to do to a landowner. And Maximov especially seems to be fairly high-ranking as far as landowning is concerned. But Ivan is sick of it. Ivan is fed up with all of these hijinks. Something has touched him. Something serious. And he is no longer putting up with his father's shit anymore. This is a weird place for us to leave off. But it's a weird scene. There's a lot going on here, obviously. Like, I haven't even talked about half of what's going on here. We've only touched on the major figures and the major events and all this stuff. And there's so much... So much to all of these characters that are just betrayed every time that Dostoevsky drops a hint about their body language or shows us exactly how they phrase it a certain way. Like, there are multiple references that Fyodor Pavlovich makes to Schiller's The Robbers, where he's clarifying that, like, Demetrius is, you know, evil, plotting son who's trying to destroy him, where Ivan is, like, the high-minded one, and it's this whole complicated reference, because Schiller is doing this really complicated thing with The Robbers, where, like, there's a bad son, and the bad son is cloying, and, you know, like, uh, it's just, just this whole thing, but we can't even get to all of that. We, we, just in this one scene have so much to sort of take apart as far as these characters interactions are concerned and again i think it's too much i think dostoevsky is doing too much here this would be great if it was 100 pages into the novel we already knew all these characters that were introduced to us gradually one at a time but no it's all one big mess and we've all got to sort it out right now right here in the moment it doesn't work i don't think like it's Again, it's my fourth time reading this, and I feel like I've missed stuff, and I'm only now sort of parsing some of the compl complexities here. We're seeing the richness of what Zosima is doing and saying, seeing how these characters are sort of bouncing off one each other about Musov's, you know, insecurities and how Fyodor is fueling Musov, and they're sort of like firing each other up and getting each other worked up to this fever pitch. Like, it's dynamite what Dostoevsky is doing here. These rich insights, this rich gaze into human nature 
into these specific people. We're seeing these fully-fledged characters show up on page 35. And it's too much. But that's, that's what Dostoevsky does. Like, that's his genius. That's... These are richer characters than even some of the greatest writers who have ever written have been able to produce, and he's throwing them all at us and letting them bounce off of each other and seeing the subtleties and the nuances and the way that they interact, as well as giving us this rich, firm hand in Elder Zosima showing us what is right and what is wrong, what is valuable and what is, what is not, what is good about these people and what is bad. That's what makes him so profound. And we're just getting started here. So next time we're on to book three. We are going to talk about... What is the title of book three? I had it. The Centralists. Just Centralists. We're going to see some actual interactions between Dimitri and Fyodor, our two passionate Centralist men. Um, but yeah, hopefully that'll be within the week. I know that this one came late because I was sick for a while, but hopefully we'll get the we'll get back on track and by next week we'll have book three and book four going. So I look forward to talking to you more then. Sorry that this one went so long, but you know, so much to talk about. Anyway, more happy reading and I'll talk to you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.